Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Lost in Science Summer Series. Over the next few weeks, we'll be taking a break from our regular show and instead we'll be playing some classic stories from The Laboratory. Now, this is a monthly event in Melbourne where scientists tell the story of their favourite scientist. First up this week, we will have researcher, science communicator, technophile and human rights activist Kobe Smith and she'll be telling the story of American biologist Rachel Carson. Following her will be mathematician Daniel Horsley and he's talking about another mathematician, George Cantor. On with the stories. Our next speaker um, is sitting in the corner over there. Her name is Kobe. She's a researcher, science communicator, technophile and human rights activist. She's taking a break from her PhD in science communication to work in Geneva on a project with a lot of acronyms, so wait for it. She's based in CERN, focused on the UNITAR UNISAT project, geotagx.org, um, as part of Citizen Cyber Lab. So please make her welcome. Thank you. I wasn't sure where you were going there with the pumpkin thing. I was like, well, I do have orange on my T-shirt, but... Yeah, I'm back in Melbourne for a couple of weeks. I was doing a show in Melbourne Fringe, and there are more people here tonight than in my entire Melbourne Fringe show season. So this is exciting, and it makes coming back more worthwhile. Thanks for coming out, guys. I'm also uh, emceeing the Privacy Workshop on Friday, if anyone cares about privacy and human rights. But just a little random plug there. But today, I'm talking about Rachel Carson. Rachel Carson has been described by the UK's Telegraph newspaper as environmentalism's answer to Pol Pot. She's also been described as a mass murderer who killed more people than Stalin. An author in the publication American Thinker likened her book Silent Spring to Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. Now, Pol Pot was a dictator who killed nearly 20% of the Cambodian population, while Stalin was blamed for the deaths of more than 40 million people. And Hitler. Like, Hitler. That's enough. So why is a marine biologist from Pennsylvania put in the same category as murderous political despots? So Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, was published in 1962 and it spent 30 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. It was debated in the American Senate and among science advisors and it was credited by some with the creation of the US Environmental Protection Agency. What she did was documented the impact of synthetic pesticides, particularly DDT, on the environment, on birds' eggshells, and on different species besides the insects that it was supposed to target. 
Since George named some names of things that get named after people, I thought I'd mention that she has several research institutions now still today named after her in the United States. She has eight schools named after her and a bridge in the US. And she still has that, right? Nonetheless, despite that, there was a, a commentary piece in Nature in 2012, just two years ago, by 11 men who said that her research was responsible for the unnecessary deaths of 60 to 80 million people. Now, these authors dismiss the impact of the pesticide on birds and other animals because it doesn't have the same effect on people at the doses that we eat. Now, the point of DDT is to kill insects, such as mosquitoes, which kill people by giving them malaria. And that's where these deaths come from. Now, they criticised Rachel Carson's work for drawing too strong a link between the pesticide DDT and the deaths of animals. They did this while themselves implicating her in the deaths of more than 60 million people via a disease, malaria, caused by mosquito bites. But, you know, nature, it's a good journal, so it must be legit, right? No problems with peer review, no problems at all. So, so is Rachel Carson a hero or a villain? Now, the website, rachelwaswrong.org, <laughs> they, they portray her as a villain. It's a website that uses images of babies in Africa to demonise a woman scientist who sparked debate about American values. Now, what do you think the values of the people who created that website were? It's still up today. Does anyone want to take a guess? Pesticide makers? But let's get more general than that. Money. Money. Oh, well, okay. So it turns out that the, the people that run the Rachel Was Wrong website are the Competitive Enterprises Institute. Now, they're a free market public policy group in Washington, and they value, as they say, liberty and free markets. So they value, for example, the freedom of chemical companies to sell their wares free from environmental regulation. The Competitive uh, Enterprise Institute on their website says that they make the uncompromising case for economic freedom. Now, their values are pretty clear. So if you value unfettered economic freedom, then of course people investigating the environmental risks of products that are on the market are going to be seen as villainous. I mean, how dare anyone say that free market economics is a flawed idea, let alone find any evidence to support that idea? That's just, that's just evil, right? Surely. Now, someone from the Ayn Rand Institute, they wrote a headline, headline called Rachel Carson's Genocide. Yeah, genocide, as if Hitler wasn't bad enough, right? That article said that her environmental ideology values, and I quote, an untouched environment above human life. Which is rubbish because Rachel Carson was a scientist, right? She... She touched nature, okay, not untouched. What she didn't do, maybe, was value human life above the environment, since she was aware, as we are increasingly aware today, that we are part of the environment. We aren't above the environment, unless we're like literally in outer space, and we, we can't just all rocket out of here in some geoengineering solution if we destroy the, destroy the place, even if Edward Teller might like that to be the case. It's just not the reality yet. So what Carson explicitly wrote in her book, kind of counter to some of these claims in the media, was, and I quote, 
It is not my, inten- my contention that chemical insecticides must never be used. I do contend that we've put poisonous and biologically potent chemicals indiscriminately into the hands of persons largely or wholly ignorant of their potential to do harm. She was saying we shouldn't be ignorant of the, technolog- the risks of the technologies that we choose to use. And she was writing about agricultural use on crops and insect resistance, not disease prevention anyway. She wasn't writing about malaria. Now, whether people consider her a villain or a hero, Rachel Carson has been overcredited with impact because it wasn't her writing alone that founded the environmental movement and led to political debate in the US in the 60s. Like Carson did this thing that scientists do in their work. She used references. And she cited other people who'd been researching the impact of pesticides on the environment in the 50s. She referred to some other people's work on the growing military-industrial complex at the time. And as Chris mentioned, the growing risks of nuclear war, which was kind of a big deal in the 50s. Carson was not some radical left-wing journalist. That said, I am reading Naomi Klein's new book right now. It's quite a tome, but it's worth looking Carson was a biologist who worked for the government until Silent Spring was published when free market libertarians would have you believe that she became a villainous spinster who killed millions of African babies overnight. Okay? Now, it's convenient for people with vested interests in the freedom of pesticide companies to blame a single woman for continued poverty and disease in Africa. And it's kind of audacious because... Pointing the finger like that distracts us from looking at bigger systemic issues that help poverty and ill health continue their cycles. Systemic issues like corporate unsustainability and unequal access to goods such as long sleeve shirts or mosquito nets, which also stop people from dying from malaria. Now, people like Hitler and Pol Pot and Stalin were power-hungry assholes who controlled people, okay? I think that's pretty fair to say. But Rachel Carson advocated less control of nature, let alone controlling people. And it's true that there are many people who die from malaria still today. Every day, a lot of people die. But blaming deaths from malaria on a scientist who evidenced environmental damage from pesticides is like blaming cancer researchers for documenting the side effects of cancer drugs. It just doesn't quite add up. And so, I mean, I don't care what Tony Abbott thinks, but environmental scientists are not villains out to destroy the economy. They weren't then, and they aren't now. Thanks. through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. Our next speaker is Dr. Daniel Horsley. Daniel researches and teaches maths at Monash. He finds the extent of his own ignorance both hilarious and exciting. 
He's been known to run distance in, in excess of what most people consider sensible. Ladies and gentlemen, Daniel. Okay, so I'd like to tell you a bit tonight about the mathematician Georg Cantor, but I'd like to begin with some things that were said about him and about his work. So, at the time when Cantor was working, um, Henri Poincaré described Cantor's ideas as a grave disease and Leopold Kronecker called Cantor a scientific charlatan, a renegade, and a corrupter of youth. <laughs> Years later, things would be quite different. David Hilbert would say that Cantor's work was one of the supreme achievements of purely intellectual human activity. And Bertrand Russell would describe Cantor as one of the greatest intellects of the 19th century. And I should point out that the names attached to these quotes amongst mathematicians are not obscure names. You know, um, Poincaré and Kronecker and Hilbert and Russell are to mathematics what Tupac and Biggie and Jay-Z and Kanye are to hip-hop. Perhaps with less heavy jewellery, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> but you might be asking, how did Cantor's work, work that would come to be considered as brilliant, manage to upset his contemporaries so much? I mean, it's not too difficult to give a political speech which really makes people angry. But how do you piss them off with a theorem or an equation? Well, I'll get to that, but let me tell you a little bit about Cantor's life first. So, Georg Cantor was born in St. Petersburg in 1845, but for the sake of his father's health, the family moved to Germany when he was just 11. And he studied in school at Darmstadt and was instantly recognised as a great mathematical talent. So eventually, with money left to him by his father, his father had since died, he went to do his doctorate in mathematics at University of Berlin. And University of Berlin at the time is one of the mathematical centres of the universe. Um, he's taught by some of the greatest mathematicians of the, the age, including Kummer and Weierstrass and Kronecker. Now, Kronecker's a name we've heard before. He's going to go on to call Cantor a corrupter of youth. Um, I'm dropping a lot of names I know so far in this talk. There are really only two you need to remember. One is Cantor. He's our hero. Two is Kronecker he's going to turn into something of a villain. Um, if you need a mnemonic to help you here, I suggest you remember that Kronecker was a problem for Cantor that only became Kronecker and Kronecker. <laughs> I, uh, I, I say that only for the sake of your memory, of course. 
Um, okay. So Cantor gets his doctorate at age 22, and he fairly soon gets a position at University of Halle. Um, now, Halle is a much less prestigious university than Berlin, of course. And from this time up until age 29, he rises through the ranks at Halle and he does work which is brilliant, but perhaps not, you know, laboratory brilliant. <laughs> um, but all this changes where, in his 29th year. His 29th year is a really big one for Cantor. So one thing that happens is he gets married to Vali Gutman. Um, their honeymoon is in the Hartz Mountains. And um, like a lot of newlyweds, Cantor spends a lot of it in his room. <laughs> Unlike a lot of newlyweds, what he's doing there is discussing mathematics with his friend and colleague, Richard Dedekind, who also happened to be in the area at the time. <laughs> But I, I should say, in fairness, he and Valley went on to have two sons and four daughters, so they clearly found some time to be alone eventually. <laughs> um, but whether it's that he's inspired by wedded bliss or by his discussions with Dedekind or both, it's now that he begins to do the work that will eventually make him famous, but in the short term mostly makes him infamous. So, what is this work? Well, Cantor's been looking at various problems that involve infinite collections of things. And he makes this fateful decision that he's going to start investigating the nature of infinity itself. So, let me pause and ask you something. Um, I don't know if you can see, but down here is a bit of prop comedy. I have a pile of Freddo frogs and a pile of caramello koalas. How could I convince myself that I have the same number of each? Well, a lot of people are probably thinking I could count them. I have a confession to make. I'm not very good at counting. Um, don't tell Monash if you don't mind. Um, there's, there's still a surprising amount of prejudice against mathematicians who, who can't count. Is there another way? Is there another way that I could convince myself I have the same number? Pair them up, exactly. So if this isn't intuitive to you, think about a waiter coming off her shift, say. She might well be able to tell you that she laid out the same number of soup bowls and soup spoons in that shift. But that's not because she counted them. She paired them up one to one. And if I could pair Freddo's with Caramello's up one to one, then I'd have shown those two piles had the same number of things in them. So, mathematicians in Cantor's day basically thought there were two sorts of collections of things. You had finite collections of things, like my collection of Freddos there. Those you could count, you could tell if two had the same number by counting. Then you had infinite collections of things, which you can't count, you'd be going on forever. And so they were just infinite, nothing more to say about them. And Cantor's first huge realisation 
is that while you can't count infinite collections, what you can do is extend this idea of pairing up to determine if two infinite collections have the same number of things in them. And he takes this idea and he runs with it and he proves some amazing things. So he proves that if you take all the numbers that you can write as fractions, so things like 3 halves, 15 sixteenths, that sort of thing, you can pair those up one-to-one with just the counting numbers. So just with one, two, three, squid, chutney. Um, Sorry, I said I wasn't very good at counting. But um, no, just just with the counting numbers. And he also shows that if you take all the numbers, all the weird numbers that you can't write as fractions. So we're now talking about things like the square root of 2 and pi and that sort of thing. You can't pair them up with the counting numbers. There's just too many of those weird numbers. And so straight away, he's actually shown that there are two different sizes of infinity. And he goes on to show that there's many more than two different sizes of infinity. There are infinitely many different sizes of infinity. And in doing so, he blows the minds of most of the greatest mathematicians of his generation. And one of the minds he blows belongs to Kronecker. Kronecker just hates this stuff. He thinks it is too weird and esoteric to possibly be true. And Kronecker, remember is a big shot, you know, a very influential mathematician. And he starts to use this influence against Cantor and against his ideas. So Kronecker really does believe that by promoting these meaningless ideas, Cantor is acting as a renegade and as a corrupter of youth. And he's not shy about saying so. And um, more than this, um, he, Kronecker, discourages editors of journals from publishing Cantor's papers. Perhaps most significantly, Cantor is desperate to get a job back at University of Berlin at the centre of the mathematical universe where Kronecker works. And Kronecker makes it very clear to the university authorities that the university is not big enough for both he and Cantor. And so throughout Cantor's 30s, he continues to do this amazing work on the infinite, work that will come to be seen as brilliant. But whether it's because of Kronecker's influence or because his ideas are just so revolutionary they don't gain much acceptance at the time. And the criticism weighs on Cantor's mind. When he's 39, he suffers a breakdown. Um, Nowadays, he would almost certainly have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And to give you some idea of his state of mind at this period, 
We know he wrote our mathematical friend over 50 letters in this year. Every one of those letters mentioned Kronika. So from this point onwards, Cantor's life will be punctuated by a series of these breakdowns and accompanying stays in sanatoriums. Um, there are some bright spots in his periods of recuperation. He still does some excellent, excellent mathematics, although by and large his work never quite reaches its previous stellar heights. Um, and things keep going downhill for him. In 1899, his youngest son, Rudolf, dies quite suddenly, and this seems to strip him of much of his enthusiasm for doing mathematics, ironically, just at a time when his ideas were first starting to get that widespread acceptance that he'd always craved. Um, he retires... The First World War comes, and during it, he and his family are reduced to poverty. And he eventually dies in 1918 in a sanatorium in which he'd spent the last year of his life. So that sort of sounds like a sad end to my story, but it's not quite the end. Let me tell you why Cantor is something of a hero of mine. So basically, two reasons. So the first is, as you might have guessed from everything I said, Cantor's ideas eventually won the battle. So out of all the controversy that Cantor stirred up, mathematicians eventually wound up with a much better idea of the foundations that mathematics is built on and with a general framework... Um, based on Cantor's ideas that virtually all modern mathematicians are happy to work in. But secondly, more importantly, Cantor's big idea won the war. So throughout Cantor's writing, there's this repeated theme that if your ideas are interesting and if they are internally consistent, that should be enough. No one should get to dismiss them just because they don't like them or because they think they're too weird. And I think Cantor's greatest triumph is that that's a sentiment that is universally accepted by mathematicians today. Cantor wrote that the essence of mathematics is its freedom. And if you ask me to sum up in a single sentence what it is I love about maths, I couldn't do any better than that. Thanks. That's it for this summer edition of Lost in Science with Tales from the Laboratory. Now, the Laboratory is a live event which you can catch at the Spotted Mallard in Brunswick. Details and tickets can be found at thelaboratory.com. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook or on Twitter. You can catch podcasts of previous shows on the 3CR website or on iTunes. 
Or you can listen to us every week on the radio when we get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.